0: As we come back together uh, this morning, we continue our study in uh, leadership, in training, uh, and in preparation for our own leadership class, and Lord willing, the addition of officers to our church, but not just officers, but but leaders at every level of the congregation. What we talk about in the... Uh, character and nature of spiritual leadership is not reserved for those who are called to an ordained or an official office. In a real sense, they should be what we cultivate within the body of Christ among all of us. And then out of that number, some of us may be called to carry an additional level of responsibility. And so uh, I've been asked on occasion, because anyway, it's not important why I'm asked. But I am asked, what on earth do you think leadership is about? How do you work through your understanding of spiritual leadership? So we started last week, not surprisingly, in Genesis chapter 1, with the first person who had an opportunity to spiritually lead another person, and we talked about three areas that Adam failed to lead, the woman. We talked about how at the moment when God's character was being challenged by the serpent, Adam had an opportunity to comfort the woman. He had an opportunity to uh, contradict or to um, combat the lies of the serpent. So there is at some point in all leadership a time where you have to confront And he needed to confront the untruths of the serpent and Eve's own, or the woman at that point's own, statements which seemed to be fencing. I can't even touch uh, the apple. That wasn't exactly what was said. And so there's an opportunity to confront what's going on in her head to add an additional fencing of the law. And then, of course, to confront uh, the falsehoods uh, that the serpent was bringing about the nature and character of God. And then finally, we talked about how there was an opportunity to call, to call in the sense of follow me away from, let us follow God, let us not follow the lies of the serpent. And so spiritual leadership and engagement within the community of faith are going to have these components. At any given time, we will need leaders who comfort us in the trustworthiness and the goodness and the reality of who God is. We will need those who can and will also confront within our own hearts or confront within the world around us or within the philosophy of the church those things which run contrary to the characters and ethics of who God is and what his kingdom is meant to bring. And then finally, there's always going to be a call to do something, to be salt and light, to go out into the world or to go into one another's lives in such a way as to be an encouragement, to be those who bear one another's burdens. And that is really the basic structure of what leadership needs to do. It needs to be able to comfort us, it needs to be able to confront us, and it needs to be able to call us to follow Christ. And so we're going to continue to work through our understanding of leadership from various passages, utilizing that grid. And it is kind of critical in our nation these days, uh, our geographic region, We are going through what appears Western Europe went through a century and a half or so ahead of us, which is plummeting numbers in the church. We seem to, fewer and fewer of us are gathering in larger and larger groups to give us a sense that there are enough of us left. But all the statistics are troubling about our ability to hold our youth, about our Uh, the understanding of the culture about who and what we are, the challenge that, again, not completely valid, yet still worth contemplating. We like Jesus, we just don't like Christians. Now, that's probably because they don't really know Jesus, but there's also some aspects where that may hurt and cut closer than we'd like to admit. And so it is certainly in every generation, in every season, an important thing to encourage a robust understanding of biblical leadership and to avoid the temptations of worldly leadership and what it looks like to see those who seem to have it together and draw them into leadership as opposed to the character and the nature of the leadership that Jesus models and grows up in his disciples and we see in other places in Scripture. And so it is certainly a key time for men and women who are called and gifted to disciple and lead to do so yet again, that we might see some of these rather troubling statistics and realities reversed, if not at least slowed. This morning, we're going to look at the hope of who we have in Christ and the opportunity for leadership through maybe a text that catches you off guard. We're going to start in Mark chapter 12. I know in your scripture reading it says we're just going to read 41 through 44, but we need a little bit more context. I don't want to uh, uh, rob us of the context. So I'm actually going to start at verse 35 this morning, and we're going to see this interaction of Jesus with his disciples, a teaching moment, a discipling moment. This is what it looks like to be my disciples. It's going to push against their understanding from a worldly perspective. Remember where we are in the text. Jesus has already done his triumphal entry. And so now this is Mark's version of the temple discourses, where Jesus is for a week attending temple. He's in Jerusalem, and he's critiquing and engaging with the leaders of the temple and the leaders of the Jewish people. Pretty soon here, within a day or two, he's going to be crucified. So we pick up the story. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes, or the lawyers, sorry Henry, who like to walk around in long robes and like greeting in the marketplace. They have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses for the pretense they make long prayers. They will receive the great condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small, small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who are contributing into the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that again we would see a familiar passage, this great story of one of our dear sisters living in the confidence of who you are, giving all that she is and all that she had. We pray this morning that we might be encouraged, that in areas of our life we might be revived by the great testimony of who she is. We pray, Lord, that anything that's said this morning that is not truthful or not useful for the building up of your people, that those words would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. We have in this passage... uh, those three same basic understandings of what leadership can and should be, what spiritual discipleship should be, right? I suppose the word leadership at some point becomes, uh, well, we all bring our definitions to it. And the desire here is to see how Jesus is giving his disciples a front row seat that they might understand the difference and the nature of what it means to be servant leaders in the kingdom. What does it mean to have spiritual leadership or headship and serve for the sake of the other? There are ways in which, because of the fall, we are regularly using our powers as leaders, whether we have it in a secular sense or in a spiritual sense, for our own ends. And because of that, and Paul battles this his entire ministry, it is very difficult and constantly needs to be reinforced that spiritual leadership is not for the leader, but really and truly for the other. And there are certain characteristics then, as we look at the ministry of Jesus, that will bear us great fruit and give us clarity of what that leadership looks like. And its character and its nature. I want us to first start with uh, the prediction Jesus has and his question to the, the the crowds around him. How can David talk about one of his offspring as his Lord? That's just not the way that we talk about our grandchildren, even if we hope that they're more successful than we are, even if David hoped that his successors would have even greater kingdoms and more peace. You don't call them my Lord. It is uh, what the scholars tell us, a clear indication that Jesus was presenting that the Messiah understanding that they had of one who would take David's throne and restore David's kingdom was more than just a biological descendant of David. That Jesus is beginning to or continues to reveal the fact that his character and his nature is no less than human, but it is so much more that the answer to David's problem was that God himself did have to come, that we needed a divine Messiah, not just a human Messiah. A human Messiah, they have come and they have gone, and in the end, they all felt tempted to use power for their own ends. David, a man after God's own heart, uses his power, and we know the tragic story, to take advantage of a woman, to then deal with the consequences. He uses his power as the commander-in-chief to make a loyal man disappear, to cover up his own sin and iniquity. Solomon starts off well and then, well, doesn't end well. Using his power at some point to enrich himself from the people. At some point in his kingdom, there was so much blessing coming in that everyone was well off. And apparently at some point, the taps may have slowed, but Solomon still wanted to live well, and the tax rate went up considerably. He used his power and his status as a king not to take care of God's people, but to establish himself in personal wealth. And we could go through the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New and be reminded time and time again that a human Messiah was not going to be the spiritual head and leader that we needed. And so Jesus here is saying begin to think about what I'm saying. I am a descendant of David. But what was David talking about? What if it was more than? At this point, again, no Jewish person would have ever thought that God would condescend to put on human flesh and blood and that that would be the means by which salvation and restoration of the kingdom would come. No one had even fancied such an obscene notion. And that's what it would have felt like. The holy and divine one is going to make himself flesh and blood and go through this muck with us? I think that had I been a first century Jewish person or minister, I would have found that pretty obscene. How dare you? The very throne on which he sits was carried on a cart, and when a good man just tried to hold that cart up and stop the ark from hitting the ground, he dropped dead. You're telling me a God who is that holy where his chair can kill somebody is going to put on human flesh and walk through this cesspool? That is obscene. And Jesus begins to raise the idea. Now, what was David talking about? Maybe your God is holy and has come near. What if there is a bigger picture of what it means for God to care for his people so much that he gives himself, that he loves us so much and all of the dramatic passages like Ezekiel 16 and other places where God's love for his people and his bride are shown through such passion and love. He hates that she runs around on him and he will not stop loving her. He pursues her again and again, even as he reminds her of her unfaithfulness. What if that God was committed enough to his people to become the very Messiah that we all need? Jesus begins, reinforces that his leadership is leadership where he comes into and does for his people. He is going to comfort. He is going to continue to confront and he's going to call them again and again to a different way but he does so by taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness he is a leader who identifies and takes on the very weight and reality of his people he then warns again and there's been several warnings throughout the temple discourse about earthly ways of doing things The two brothers had asked a chapter before if they could sit on his right hand and his left hand, and again, only in the most macabre way is that uh, funny, but it is kind of funny when you think about what they were asking, and Jesus pushing back and saying, you really don't understand what you're asking, because when I am glorified, you really aren't going to want to be on my right and my left. You think it means beautiful chairs, footstools, and attendants. What it means is blood and pain for the other. Now here in this passage, we have the scribes, the lawyers, the people who figure out how to technically do things technically according to the law or as close to the law line as possible, one side or the other. And they used God's law, and they used the law of Rome, and they used the law of Herod to do many things that were unjust. And Jesus had been confronting their technical ways of designing things like korban, where you could keep your money, but technically dedicate it to the temple, but you could spend it all before you died, and that would be unfortunate. But what you could definitely say you didn't have to do was take care of your family. And Jesus confronts that. It's part of the background from him saying, You take away the homes of the widows, and then you pray long prayers about your faithful desire to follow God's law. Jesus is confronting. He is also offering a measure of comfort that that legal ease, that ability to technically do something, will not always reign true. And there's nothing more comforting to the oppressed. Than the sure knowledge that the way in which law was used to oppress them will someday be undone. These scribes will not have the last word. They will face the final condemnation. Even now as you face oppression by the law itself, you will find that the Redeemer in the final condemnation will bring all those things to justice. So it's not the power of sitting to the right and to the left it's not the power of human beings to technically figure out legally how to do things to one another that's not leadership that's not earth that's earthly power not divine power so what does it look like in this passage the illustration of a commitment to and the kind of godly leadership is this Simple widow woman. Simple in the sense that there's not a whole lot we know about her. Except that she comes in the midst of all the fanfare. Again, remember this is Passover, right? So this is probably, again, we have in a certain way in in the American church uh, a tendency to uh, see a lot of giving at the end in December, right? And that's because there's tax advantages. But we also see how much the church needs. There's a huge flood like January uh, in, in December. I imagine Passover, maybe it was the end of their fiscal year, and so you needed to make budget with the temple. And everybody shows up for Passover to make sure that you kick enough cash in. And so we show, with all of the grandeur, how much we can give. And so in the midst of this pageantry of the wealthy dropping off their offerings at the temple... This dear saint comes and gives all that she has, which is a declaration of faith and hope. It is truly worship. It's gone from some sort of financial arrangement with the divine to a statement of faith in the goodness of her God. It is her calling and expectation. She believes that she should give herself and all that she is. And again, we know lots of studies show us that this is often easier for those with less means. But that doesn't mean it should be reserved. The disciples are called to witness what she's done. Jesus takes a teachable moment and says, this is what faith and leadership looks like. How is giving two pennies, E.C., how... Are you going to flog this horse and make your point? I would suggest this. That the disciples were wrestling with their identity and their place. How do I define myself as a leader? And they were tempted to define leadership, prestige, power, headship in human categories sitting at the right hand or the left hand, the ability to argue the law and to convince and to convict. And Jesus is saying, no, the definition is one who rests and is dependent upon God, your creator. She was making a public affirmation of where her identity was. She's not poor, she's dependent. See, the problem is the rich people didn't realize that they were dependent upon God. Poverty is a moving target. Governments set certain levels. Uh, Things change in technology that what looked like poverty a hundred years ago, our poorest people enjoy today. Poverty is not one set thing. It is a moving, difficult thing to nail down. Her identity isn't poverty. Her identity at that moment of offering is dependent, and any leadership that we would want or sit under should have as its mark a recognition of its dependency, its dependency upon the grace of God for wisdom, its dependency upon God for the resources to do ministry, its Dependence on the love of God to come alongside those in pain or in sin. Not in the scribe's mentality where I can convict you or tell you why you're wrong in your sin. Not in the I sit on the right hand or left hand of God so you should listen to me by basis of the seat I have. None of those qualify as leadership. But in Christ it is the identity of a dependent Dependent upon a loving and gracious God. Dependent as a child is dependent upon their family. To give them identity, to give them strength, to give them grace, to give them the resources they need. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. How is that true? Because of course Jesus says she gave herself. In the end, the lesson the disciples needed to learn as they watched this woman about what godly leadership looks like is that just as Christ took on the very nature of a servant and gave himself to the Father on our behalf, we too as God's people are called to give ourselves to God that we might have an identity and a hope and power that the world can scarcely imagine. She gave all that she had. She gave herself. There is no greater gift. There is nothing that we can generate in gold and silver or clever talents that are worth giving. Because interestingly enough, wonderfully enough, the God who took on Messiahship did so because he loves you. Because he loves you individually and corporately as his bride. He pursues you because he cares for you. That's the nature and the heart of the leadership that Christ wanted the disciples to mark out in the early church. And we see to the degree that it was not always easy, yet nonetheless, when they did, the Spirit blew and lives were transformed. When they took on the nature of a servant, when they comforted, when they confronted, and when they called God's people from a position of their identity as dependence upon the Holy Spirit and a risen Christ, the church grew. And God's people were led well. I don't stand before you because I do this terribly well. In fact, I'm probably shooting myself in the foot. But that's better than selling us a kind of leadership that may be able to grow a church to a certain size or manage certain issues. But those are temporal. The eternal, that's what we're called to. And that's what we have opportunity to see in our leaders, not that they've accomplished, but that they're dependent. Offering what they have and having God provide all that we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Again, Lord, the, uh, the hypocrisy is evident. And yet we know that only you could preach and teach the doctrines of, of servant leadership without hypocrisy. We pray that in ever greater degrees, by your spirit, that your people, not just at CVP, but throughout your church, would be regularly and faithfully led by those who are dependent upon you alone. May we model it in what we say and what we do, all for your glory, in Christ's name, amen.